0: Phil's Breakfast Metal episode 48. I'm joined by Rob again for this one. It's going to be a much more positive episode than our last one. Back to the usual format. We're covering uh, four arms today and they're kind of all I'd say in the vein of slightly progressive sludge metal.
1: Yeah, so I, I thought this would be an interesting one because it sort of explores um, it's sort of those bits of doom which move into post-metal and sludge metal. And-, and post-metal is a term I've been trying to get my head around properly for the... Scope of this episode, oh, okay. which is is hard because it is a, it's a weird and nebulous topic, but we'll certainly talk about it in the bands and the like points at which I think it's a useful term to talk about and some of the ideas and the emotions that these bands use. Um, but yeah, it's exploring that end of metal, the sort of like more stripped back, more atmospheric um, and ambient and evocative without being black metal, because often these terms overlap a lot. Mm. So I think it's a really interesting way to look at how, particularly Doom, has evolved over time and taken on new sort of sonic qualities, become a bit more dynamic uh, and, I guess, less traditional, less sort of like candle mass and exploring new areas and
0: new influences. Yeah, and I should say as well, these are four albums Rob's brought, so some of them I was very, very aware of beforehand, some of them, this is my first time listening. So the first one, one I am very aware of, We're covering Yob's seventh album, Clearing a Path to Ascend, from 2014, on New Recordings. Like, this was, for me, I think this was the point where Yob blew up. Like, I kind of, I was vaguely aware of them before, but this is where I got into them. Mm -hmm. And this is where they, they suddenly, they got like a really high score, like in NME's like top 10 albums of the I year really? kind of thing. Yeah. I believe uh, it was NME. It was one yeah. of those big music magazines. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's because, yeah, this is the point where I got into job as well, where they just sort of exploded onto the consciousness. It's their seventh album. Yeah. And, you know, like it's well into their career, um, but they've like massively honed down and, I think the thing that was interesting is particularly with um, last year, our raw heart coming out, which also got you know a huge amount of press coverage, and it's it's fantastic to see Yob getting all of this attention after you know they've been going for so long um, and have so many albums under their belt. Um, I felt a bit that our raw heart, while a good album, doesn't necessarily deserve
0: the rapturous praise that it got, I, particularly when you compare it backwards. I didn't really like it, if I'm honest. Like not in a kind of oh this is shite, but just in a I've got other albums by Yob, I literally don't, there's no point me listening to this one where I could go for one of their others. For those of you who aren't aware, we should probably describe what Yob are. Mm-hmm. They're, they're a three-piece, uh, kind of mainly led by Mike Scheidt on guitar and vocals, who do this kind of, um, very raw, heavy, doom-slash-stoner metal. That kind of, Really big fuzzed out guitar, so sound huge riffs that go on and on for ages, like great building passages where they can work on one riff over like a four minute period mm. with just slight variations and then clean to scream vocals, but always everything 's just quite raw about
1: your yeah I think this is the interesting thing like because they often described as that doom and stoner. Sound um, and there's a there's a huge difference I feel with Yob and most other bands that get that description. Mm. Most of the bands who get that description, if you think of like Orange Goblin or Sleep or High on Fire or something like that, they will have riffs that are sort of driving and fun in a way mm. that is sort of like you know want like get you moving or have like a new wave of British heavy metal feel to them. They're quite entertaining. Yob do not have those riffs. Um, they are much like more melancholy and darker yeah. um and heavier. Like they particularly as a three-piece, watching some of the live videos they do, uh there's one in um the Green Rooms which is amazing. They build such a massive sound out of three people. Uh and they have bits where it feels like there's little bits of influences of like more extreme black and death metal coming into it. And they channel so much emotion through so little. So little because there's only three of them, and so little because they play quite slow Doom a lot of the time. Yeah, yeah. But every note is packed with like meaning and emotion. And for me, this is where doing a lot of research around like the idea of what post-metal is um, sort of comes in. It's that idea of taking away some of those riffs that are driving and hooky in their own right and really get people engaged and interested. And that is sort of replaced with this just heaviness of feeling and atmosphere and emotion being conveyed through what they do. And, yeah, like, if you look at particularly the final track on of this album, Marrow, that, from start to finish, an 18-minute long song, every, like, movement
0: in it and every note is sort of emotionally breathtaking. Yeah, yeah. And, like, something that survived kind of translation to, like, an acoustic version in mm. immensely they just immensely well, so incredibly moving in the same way the huge, heavy, kind of distorted version is. And there's a lot of interesting stuff, like, we're probably not the best people to talk on it, but um, there's a lot about Mike's guitar playing that's kind of incredible, because yeah. you take, he basically, like, early on in his life, got taken under the wing of a really good country guitarist, so he learned all sorts of strange, more country-style picking methods, and then pulled into metal, which is why his guitar playing doesn't sound like anyone else's in metal. Like, his riff writing is quite different. Yeah, he has this really unique
1: sound. and uh, like, And then add that to this just monstrous guitar tone, which sounds like nothing else as well. Um, And the rest of the band, like um, Travis Foster on drums and Aaron Reisberg on bass, they form this amazing solid backing Mm. um, because you can really hear it on parts of this album where you will have, and this other Yob albums as well, you will have parts where you've got just the guitar playing these riffs and then when the bass comes in you're suddenly hit by this massive wall. But they lock in really, really nicely into this giant wall. And a lot of the time, it is quite hard to tell exactly which instrument is making that huge sound that you're hearing. Yeah, because the
0: bass has got a very fuzzed out tone as well. So Mm. it is like kind of, which I think works for this style quite well, actually, where all of it just kind of melds together into a nice, kind of fuzzed out overall tone. Mm. There's moments where the bass cuts through more clearly, but it's certainly, for the most part, yeah, hard to tell exactly what's doing what. Yeah. And I think this album, the thing that really sets it apart for me is, It's
1: always, firstly, it's, it's got those phenomenal song structures of sort of gradual evolving, but it's also, I think, the most apocalyptic Yob have ever sounded. Like, there are moments on this. I think Marrow's actually probably the least apocalyptic. It's incredibly sad, but it sort of resolves itself towards the end with some, like, sort of melancholy, happy, in a way, yeah. segments. But then, particularly earlier in the album, it is far more sort of aggressive and bleak in a way through Doom, the way that Doom can really only do, and mixes that with these sort of like more hypnotic, psychedelic sections. And they're just really well balanced. Yeah. And yeah. it's one of the things that again I think the sort of term post-metal becomes kind of useful. Because their songs don't follow those typical verse chorus structures, which was as so post-metal essentially was started by Godflesh and Neurosis. And then a little bit later into ISIS as well, or those are bands which the term has been used to describe and where it came from. A lot of those bands don't necessarily, and Neurosis certainly don't recognise that as a term for their music, but it's used to describe it. And um, there was an interview of Aaron Turner, who we'll talk about with Sumac as well, but he was saying that yeah, like they basically stripped back that verse chorus structure, and it was all about letting that sort of feeling evolve throughout Mm. the song, and I think Yob do that, and that's one of the things that makes them interesting and distinct. And there are a lot of bands that do it, it's quite hard to describe, but I think Yob really hooked in on that, so they have that element in there.
0: I can certainly see what you mean with Yob, like, thinking about a lot of these songs, they all seem to have that thing where they build to one particular point, like, Mm. the opening in our blood really has that kind of, yeah, sort of going through, saying, coming out at a point, like, almost ten minutes into the song, where... Like There was clearly a build to that point. Actually, track two, Nothing to Win, has a similar thing where the song does a kind of almost fake-out ending, and then you get a bass and drum groove coming, mm. and then what follows that is, like, the bigger explosion of the riffs earlier on. Weird, um, yeah, that's really, really interesting. Yeah, I've not even, I've got to admit, I've never even thought of post-metal as a term. It's one of those, because <laughs> I sort of have a good picture of what post-rock means. Yeah. Post-metal, yeah, that's... It's, it's a weird one that I've been trying to
1: think about for this episode, specifically. Um, I guess other stuff to talk about is um, Travis Foster, the drummer. Uh, he's, one of those, he's one of those great doom drummers who is like really restrained. Yes. Uh, and I think that's something we'll talk about a lot in this episode. But in general, like, he's, the album has this amazing drum sound where it's really clear. And I think particularly as a three-piece, and you can see this in the live videos as well. He does really good work in filling out that space with cymbals but also not over-cluttering it. So it's often like slightly open hi-hats and, you know, big sort of ride cymbal or crash cymbal, which fills that space where you might normally have another player who's helping to mm. fill that out, but again, keeps it slow. So it's that ringing cymbal that fills that space, which really, like, pulls the sound, They're super tight unit. And I think the drumming and the restrained nature of it really adds to that trying to put way more fills and stuff in would essentially take away from the
0: heaviness and like the mystique of it. Yeah, because yeah, it is definitely a style of metal where the drumming, to, to many, like, to an like myself, does almost sound simplistic. Mm. I imagine it's quite hard to do because it is so perfectly tight and in time, yeah. while we've a lot of spaces, which I think gets into a weird opposite end of technical. Although there is moments it sort of speeds up, like, nothing mm. to win the second track is actually kind of fast and yeah. groovy, just in the drum kind of end of things. Mm, yeah, he's certainly not
1: lacking ability, and I think that's one of the hallmarks of a really good drummer, is someone who could do loads of fancy stuff, but decides that actually this it wouldn't help the song to do it at this yeah, point. Yeah.
0: So with Job, how much have you gone back to their older stuff? Because there's interestingly a couple of eras as well, and they broke mm. up for about three years at one point as well in the early 2000s. Bits and pieces. So the other ones that I know quite well are um,
1: Atma and yeah. um,
0: The Great Cessation. Yeah, yeah. Which um, I think are the the two kind of properly famous of the rest yeah, of their catalog. Yeah, like, especially Atma. I remember hearing a
1: lot more about at the time. Yeah, there's, there's only like I've only given like sort of a cursory listen to the
0: other albums in there. As I can't actually remember the names. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I, I, this that thing with when a band has like eight albums, especially yeah. in this kind of vein of like. Often post an hour runtime kind of doom. I don't regularly check out everything in the catalog mm. because it's just too much to get through. There's quite interesting stuff as well, like the lineups changed quite a lot at that mm. time. It's always been Mike at the fore, but Travis has only been with them since about 2003, which is mm. they started in 1996. So he was, you know hosts the first couple of albums and Aaron only joined when they reformed in 2009. Mm. So he's only been with them for, I think, three albums. Yeah. But they have that thing of, like, they look like they've been playing together since forever because (laughs) they're so impossibly tight and in sync. And um, Mike's vocals
1: as well are really worth mentioning because he's a a really unique but phenomenal vocalist. He sort of sounds like, the best way I can think of it, is like sort of Ozzy Osbourne but turned up to 11 and then with, like, this amazing vibrato put on it. Yeah. Which... It's just such a unique and interesting clean singing sound. Like the, he hits notes so perfectly, and it sounds really like mournful and expressive at the same time.
0: Yeah, because he has this really brilliant high, almost like new wave of British heavy metal voice. Mm. But just because of what it's over, it sounds so weird. And then, then his scream is. Yeah, just a really cool, kind of in that neurosis vein of screaming, yeah. I think, that kind, it's of, kind of Scott it's Kelly kind of, sound. It's kind of like a roar. Like, it yeah. doesn't really have that really low guttural edge to it, yeah, but it
1: has that roaring
0: sound. It, it, it's that kind of scream that, I think the reason I use a Scott Kelly comparison, mm. of that style of screaming to me feels like it came out of hardcore. It came out of the more extreme end of punk rather than yeah. your, your death metal or black metal growls. Mm. And yeah, it really
1: varies that up a lot over the course of the album um and yeah it's great to have that variation but also such a unique sound on both the harsh and the cleans and again maybe it's just because we don't listen to hardcore as much yeah, but it yeah. feels fresh and different in like a
0: sort of doom band i think it might actually be a case of because we don't listen to a huge amount of the more stoner stuff i think that mm. vocal style is also more common with the bands who sort of come out of the caius type end of things yeah, and made that yeah. a bit heavier but yeah, the, oh, the other thing I'd like to mention with this is the album cover's brilliant. It, oh, yeah. It's a very, very cool kind of simplistic but evocative image done by um, Ryan Landau, who um, hmm. also did, on one of the re- episodes we did recently, the cover for Annihilation of the Wicked and oh, Necrophagius, right. and it's like easily the best work I think yeah. I've ever seen of his. Yeah, definitely
1: and it's it, yeah because it's got the sort of three suns on it like moving into the distance and then so you have quite a lot of eastern influences and in the stuff that yeah, I do. yeah. So the, the album Atma is to do with the concept of a higher self and this album like opens up with a quote from um, Alan Watts who was a um, American philosopher who went over to you know, various places in the world and learned about philosophy out there and like studied Zen training and stuff like that and it opens, I really like how it opens, it opens with him saying time to wake up and then it just pushes you into these huge doom riffs which I really like. But yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on,
0: you know, conceptually in what Yob do. I think because Mike's been quite open about doing a lot with meditation and so on to mm. get over like mental health issues. Um, Endless Mental Podcast did a far more in-depth analysis of that side of things. Mm. And that, that was sort of the, the, the host that does a lot of meditation stuff himself. So that was a really interesting take on it. I think it was about a year or so that mm. they did that. But if you're interested in the kind of lyrical themes, go check that out. And also just look up Mike on YouTube because there's so many videos of him yeah. chatting about this kind of stuff. Also, production job by uh, Billy Barnett is incredible. Like I yeah I uh, think he he's been a part of the band like in the kind of recording sense for quite a while. But like his his work on this gives it that real natural, like old school rock feel. Mm. But just as Rob says, like turned it all up to eleven. Yeah, we're playing something
1: that's apocalyptically heavy and able to switch between the things we were saying earlier where there's moments where the bass is really quite distinct from the guitar and you can pick out the individual parts to these huge riffs where it all locks in and that sort of that fuzz locks in together to create this massive wall of noise. Yeah. And yeah. and that that must be an incredible talent to be able to pull off both of those extremes. Normally it's you have to sort of tilt the balance in one direction in order to get it, but if you managed to capture both on this album.
0: Yeah, it's it's really impressive. But yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to more from Job. Like, Mm. although I wasn't so into our raw hearts, I definitely think they're still still at a point where they have got more to give and they could still do another really interesting, unique album. Mm. I just really love Clearing a Path to Ascend and I would be surprised if they can top this one.
1: Album we're covering um, is from Sumac. Uh, it's The Deal in 2015 from Pro- Profound Law Records. And now, Sumac were a really interesting band that I've got into over the last few years and have really wanted to cover. They essentially emerged um, after the metal band Isis um, ended. Aaron Turner, who was the guitarist and vocalist in Isis, is guitarist and vocalist of Sumac. And around 2014, he was playing, sort of writing a lot of heavier music trying to fight, like write the heaviest and darkest thing that he'd ever heard. Um, and then around that time, uh, he was chatting to uh, Kurt Bellow, who's from um, uh, Converge. And he put him in contact with Nick Yashin, who I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, but <laughs> probably aren't. Um, he was looking for a drummer who'd be able to play some of this really heavy, aggressive material. And um, Kurt put him in touch with Nick. Um, and Nick is rapidly becoming one of my favourite drummers at the moment. Um, they jammed together for a little bit, found that it was really working, and then brought in Brian Cook on bass, who's the bass player from Russian Circles. Yeah, and yeah. then formed this like job, this sort of power trio playing this sort of, like, sludgy, progressive, post-metal thing, which explored really, like, much heavier and more aggressive versions of the sort of thing ISIS might have been doing. Now, I I quite like bits of ISIS, but I've got into Sumac in a way bigger way because I love this sort of dissonance that they create, how aggressive and uncompromising it is at the same time as being quite groovy, having additional sort of instruments like piano and stuff in there and samples... Um, but then also having one of the things I think makes them so interesting is the phenomenal drum performance from Nick and um, he's also the drummer in Baptists who are a hardcore band who I've also been getting into mainly because his drumming is so good <laughs> there's an incredible video uh, you can watch of uh, it's really high quality and there's a camera just on the drum kit watching him play for Baptists is amazing because he's He's a really, really interesting drummer. Like, he's really fast all around the kit, but he does loads of stuff using the toms and loads of interesting, like, triplet patterns, which is the sort of classic John Bonham drum fills and then drum solos. But he builds loads of that into the grooves. And if you listen to the first song of this album, The Thorn in the Lion's Paw, it's got a relatively simple but quite dissonant riff, which then has this, like, weird triplet tom pattern built on top of it, which for a lot of drummers would have been a really simple sort of, you know hitting lots of beats on the floor, Tom, and then just, you know, building a solid beat around it. But he pulls in these weird triplets, which give it this incredible energy. You know, as a contrast to something like Yob, where you have a drummer who is holding down this gigantic sort of monolithic riff. In here, Nick is driving pretty much the whole energy of the band and making it feel weird and always on edge, because there's always something odd going on in the drums and there are parts where he does blast beats as well in a band like this, which just feels weird. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this is your first time sort of live game to Sumac. So. Yeah, so
0: Sumac were the one on this list I was completely unaware of other than Rob had mentioned in our In A Year show, and this is their debut album, and mm. it's very much, it's obviously a Rob band. I think listeners <laughs> who are drummers will get this more than others because almost all the technicality and complexity is in the drumming. Yeah. The guitar and like vocal work is incredibly simplistic in a lot of places, and, like, as Rob was saying, the drumming is what makes it weird. Yeah. Like, a lot of the riffing is quite straightforward, but then just goes a bit broken because <laughs> yeah. the drum performance, like, just leads them off in quite different directions. And, like, music-wise, considering these both we could describe as post-metal or, mm. like, progressive sludge or something like this, this, music-wise, is a completely different job. This exactly. So, they are so different. Whereas Job evokes a lot of, like, sadness and kind of bleak atmospheres that slowly build to a point... Sumac is far more dissonant and upsetting. It's, yeah. it's, it's more scary music.
1: It feels more like primordial man. Um, primordial man?
0: Do you mean primitive man? Primitive man.
1: man. <laughs> feels more like primitive man than something like Yob. Mm. Um, and this, this is the interesting thing when I was sort of looking at post metal a lot of the ways that people conceptualize it as a genre is, well, that it's not really a genre. It's more a way of approaching things mm. and an aesthetic which builds around the idea of stripping back a lot of the extraneous elements of metal so like in these bands you will not find guitar solos um, or like hugely technical moments it's much more focused around the emotion and the atmosphere um, and some people even use terms like revelation within the music it's about giving you this emotional experience without these extraneous parts of the music almost like stripping out that in a sense that like artist personality no one's showing off here it's all about delivering this message. Um, and obviously, that it's a really woolly thing to define because that could describe an awful lot of things, like that could describe lo- lots of parts of black metal as well. But I think, as a sort of aesthetic, as an idea, you can see it in lots of different parts of metal. Um, my favorite description of Sumac's sound that I found when I was just looking through some of their stuff online was someone saying it's like being in a mosh pit full of rhinos, and then
0: at the end someone throws a hand grenade in for good measure. (laughs) I think something actually interesting you bring up there, the idea that 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 could be used to describe some of the more kind of obtuse end of black metal. Mm. I actually think some of those bands would work well as a tour. Like I think Sumac with Convulsing or something like that in support would be a a show where like that is a consistent atmosphere, although the music is totally different. I I could
1: see that really working. And uh, the interesting thing I find is that the guitar tone in this isn't super heavy. You know, if you listen to this guitar by itself, it doesn't sound like it's going to be in a band, which is going to make you feel this sort of like upset and dissonant. But there's something about particularly when the bass kicks in as well. The bass is a huge presence on this album and together it manages to sound incredibly aggressive and unpleasant. Without just resorting to, you know, like a really crunchy guitar tone. But I think
0: that is the Russian Circles' influence coming in there mm. because having—I remember seeing Russian Circles supporting Mastodon, and I've been a big fan of Russian Circles for years, actually. But seeing them on a really big stage, and you were like, they were still capturing this incredibly dark apocalyptic atmosphere as a free piece, mm. so, and a free piece who pretty aren't used to playing really big venues, but. They did a hell of a lot with that to the point where actually the follow up bands of, uh, I think it was Red Fang and Mastodon, could, couldn't quite match the intensity yeah. of what Russian Circles were doing to open with. It's like, don't bring Russian Circles as an opener, it's too good. Like and I, and I, I think that's hitting on a really interesting point
1: because I think some of the things that makes this term post metal in a way useful is that intensity of emotion. You know, if you look at bands like Mastodon, for example, you know, they have a really strong connection with neurosis. And they have sections, loads of sections where they'll get Scott Kelly in, like that amazing uh, Live in the K pit video they did recently. There are sections of Mastodon which have this in it, particularly if you look at albums like Crack the Sky. There are lots of moments which are like this, but I think the thing that separates out a lot of these bands is their entire sound is this. You know, there aren't these like, Cookie fun moments, it's all devoted to this idea. And yeah. in Sumac's case, it's that dissonance and unpleasantness, which I think, yeah, something like um, Convulsing does as well, just through a different way. And with a band like Job, as we were talking about earlier, they're going for a different emotion, but they use some of the same sort of tools to get there.
0: Mm. Um, something else, actually, I want to bring up, this quite an interesting like, con- like a change between those two. Like, mm. like, is the Kurt blue production job, or mixing job, versus how Billy Barnett sort of recorded the Yob album. Mm. It's very polar opposite because Kurt Below has this kind of although it sounds kind of raw and alive, it's it's more like say a Colin Marston recording rather than something that sounds a bit more old school rock. It's got yeah. it's got a very modern metallic edge to it. But but I guess it still sort of has that thing of like a lot of space for instruments to breathe. Like he doesn't overly compress things. Yeah, and it's it's got these really interesting moments, like in
1: um, Hollow King, it's got this slower section where you've got with the drums slow down a little bit. And there's a lot of, like, reverb and echo you can hear on the toms and the snare in particular. Um And it, like, that... Because it doesn't quite feel live. It's mm. not like a live echo. There's something a bit off about it. Um And I guess that's sort of Sumac in general. They play riffs which aren't hugely complicated, but there's something off about them. There's something that sounds a little bit wrong. Um, and actually, in that section as well, in Hollow King, there's this is this riff that always feels like it's about to start but it never quite gets there. It's always about to do something but it never quite resolves what it's doing. And then you add that to um, Aaron Turner's vocals as well which are just like this sort of like raspy roaring growl thing. Like they're almost inarticulate in a way but yeah. there's a depth of emotion in what's going on there like particularly when his voice breaks when he uses the sort of more harsher shouts. Um, it almost feels like a sort of caveman. And then it breaks into this like more of a raw growling sound. And yeah, it just becomes like this other sonic element of destruction that's happening
0: over the top. There's something really weird going on with the vocals in this album. They're the bit I almost sort of forget because mm. of the way they sit with everything. They don't sit on top of the mix where you're like very clearly going, oh, well, here's a human voice. It just has that feeling of like it's in there with the other rhythm, which... He's almost like something you would expect of something like artificial brain with mm. the hyper low gutturals. I can get that as another rhythm punch, but you don't get that so often with that more hardcore influenced vocal style. Yeah. It's an interesting, an interesting way of approaching things. I will say with Sumac, they're a band I've got to be in the mood for because this is quite an intense <laughs> album. Yeah. Like pre, like I listened to it quite a few times before. This and some days I get halfway through and be like. Oh god, no, I need I need something <laughs> I need something with more melody and more bits yeah. to catch on to. And some days I'm like this is absolutely brilliant. Like Yeah.
1: It's I think it's one of those bands that like I can listen to eternally because I love the um I love the horrible dissonant atmosphere it creates. But then if I'm not in the mood for that I can just listen to the drum patterns and sort of go, God, that's fascinating. Like, it's so interesting to have something that, you know, normally would be slow and heavy and unpleasant have this, like, hyperactive drummer who's doing all these interesting and unconventional
0: rhythms. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think with that, like, it would be amazing to see us live. Like, yeah. they're, they're a band I definitely, as much as, like, they probably won't ever be my favourite band, I really want to see mm. them on tour. And I want to see what they bring with them. Like, who on earth. Who on earth does Sumac support? I don't know. Because <laughs> much like Russian Circles, I could see them ending up on tours where they're supporting bands like Macedon yeah. and would be infinitely inappropriate for <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, it would.
1: Um, and there's there's other stuff as well. So like they have those super heavy moments, but then they'll have those bits where the bass and drums or just the bass will drop out for a moment. And you'll have these bits of guitar which sound almost like Earth. Yeah, these, yeah. These like, sort of like, like southern country twang to it. And it was actually recorded with... Um, Mel Detmer who recorded Sun O and Earth so so there is a sort of conceptual link there but then obviously it will take those bits and then it will corrupt that wholesome feeling by dropping you back into this sort of maelstrom yeah yeah Um, but yeah that, that is Sumac they're a really weird and unconventional band but I thought it was a really interesting way of showing how they get across these like single ideas of emotion through something very simple but then have a really interesting difference by having this hyperactive drama bill today definitely. Um, and this is neurosis it's their eighth album the eye of every storm which is released on 2004 on europe records now yeah neurosis are one of those legendary bands which have been around for ages and have sort of innovated and done things really differently inspired a whole bunch of bands like massadon are a great example of a band who have deep links with neurosis both musically and personally which have then gone on to define a lot of what you know popular metal is Um, And So Neurosis formed back in 1985 as a hardcore band, so years ago. And then by 95 and 10 years later, Steve Von Till, uh, who's one of the guitarists, and Noah Landis joined um, with Scott Kelly um, and Jason Roder on drums. And then they had that, the keyboards part became part of it. They had the dual guitars. And they also then brought in um, a visual artist. And that became part of how they did things. And so by the point we're at this album, it's Scott Kelly on guitar and vocals. Steve Till on guitar and vocals, Dave Edwardson on bass, um, Jason Roder on drums, Noah Landis on organ, piano and samples, and Josh Graham doing the visual media.
0: And honestly, that that lineup for Neurosis has been pretty stable for like 25 years. The only real change is Josh Graham, the visual guy, Mm. is a relatively newer addition, like they had a a guy before him. But yeah, Neurosis are... uh, kind of institution in metal at this point. Because they formed as sort of like a hardcore band and then
1: gradually evolved and became what people would describe as sort of post-metal and sludge metal and all of these different terms because they were doing something which we didn't really have a vocabulary which could cover. And they've always been one of those bands that are experimenting and trying different things. Um, And I really wanted to cover Eye of Every Storm because I I think it's a really interesting
0: point in Neurosis' career which is perhaps talked about a little less... I think a lot of their later material is kind of yeah it doesn't get the same coverage because a lot of their they're sort of not so much early the sort of album 3 to 6 something like yeah. that it's just so known as like classic essential listening if you like mm. long form experimental extreme metal, or possibly not even metal with the neurosis, I'm not quite sure where to categorize yeah. them. I think particularly as you get to this album, this is something
1: where I see you can get lots of people into it who wouldn't be into metal. Yeah. And, you know, does this album technically count as metal? I, I don't know. You know, it's certainly skirting those borders. It has moments where I definitely describe it as metal, but a lot of it pulls back into more atmospheric and hypnotic and like more post rock than post metal. And again, I'm going to tie myself in a notch thinking about what those terms actually mean. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so this is where neurosis, they keep a little bit of almost folk influence, particularly from the album before as well. And this album has an amazing sort of give and take of tension throughout the whole thing of these sort of small melodic guitar sections, which will go on for a while and be kind of quiet And then they will build, uh, particularly the first song, Burn, builds up to this point from the beginning, drops away, and then it's actually far quieter than you're expecting. Yeah, Yeah. You're expecting it to build to this huge moment, and it doesn't. It builds to this sort of soft guitar melody. And then you have um, Scott Kelly and Steve Von Till on vocals, and it starts off with Scott Kelly with um, the line, um, you're lying in the snow, not quite dead. And Neurosis have such a way of this sort of... Raspy, unique, very American-sounding vocal style that they have is so packed with emotion in everything, and the lyrics as well—they're so evocative and bring up so much, so many images in your head. And it explores, particularly this album, a lot of themes of depression and sadness. In a,
0: I think that's a general neurosis, neurosis.
1: (laughs) but um, yeah, very sort of explicitly about that because you can hear everything they're saying as well, and it's poetic and interesting and really keeps your attention but a lot of the album is quite quiet and reserved and there's not a huge amount going on although it does have huge sections and i think that turned quite a few people off a lot of people found that there's at least from some of the reviews i've been reading around the time when it was released people didn't quite get that there were long sections where not much happened you know yeah. it wasn't heavy and doesn't have as many high energy sections as early neurosis did but i think it captures that sort of bleakness and that windswept desolation.
0: Uh, yeah, I think they, they would definitely move... They've been moving through their career to this more atmospheric, less riff-driven kind of sound. And it is it, a very gradual progression you can see through their albums getting to this point. Because mm. they keep it going with, like, Given to the Rising, which I think is after this one, isn't it? I think that's right, yeah. Yeah, that would be the one where I'd actually apply that review yeah. of uh, some of the the more kind of quiet sections don't work quite as well. Mm. Whereas this, I do think they're justified. Yeah, yeah. And uh,
1: it's it's interesting as well that the sound of it is very sort of open. Um, it's not like crunchy and heavy. Like the drum sound, for example, is this is sort of incredibly crisp. Um, and as well, kind of like Yob, it's really reserved. And then you have these really clean sounding guitars as well mm. with just these quite nice melodies which have this little sort of turn of sadness to them. But sound like they could be in a post rock band rather than in neurosis. And I really yeah. like how they've continued that experimentation. And with the song structures as well, they're all these gradual builds and coming down off the build as well and changing the tension. Like the instrumental shelter, which is about halfway through the album, is a really interesting one in this, in that it has it doesn't have any of those sort of vocals as that obvious hook. But it has these huge moments, and then it will come down off them again, mm. back into the gentle section, and then it will build up again. And as I said, it will do that thing unexpectedly, like in Burn, where it feels like it's going to be a huge, like heavy moment, and it's not, and it just undercuts you. So I, you know, I I found that quite interesting because in a way, I found the album kind of surprising because it does things you don't expect it to do musically, but it
0: fits really nicely. Yeah, yeah, there's. I think that's the thing, Neurosis are a band who still have surprises up their sleeve mm-hmm. this long into their career. They they always do throw kind of slightly weirder ideas at the listener. And then I guess as well, because they're a band who take their time on an album, an album is going to be this big 70-minute thing. Mm-hmm. They give themselves plenty of space to let ideas evolve. You kind of have to get into a headspace, I think, to listen to Neurosis in general, because you have to accept... I'm in for a long haul. You can't listen yeah. to a track. You need to sit down mm-hmm. this... Often, 60 70 minute plus thing and let it evolve and take you somewhere. It's yeah. why having the visual elements so good because most of the albums there is a full like film accompaniment to mm. go with it, and if you see them live, they do incredible stuff with that as well. And there is that idea of very meditative getting into a headspace of a very dark headspace, yeah. so, yes. but um, yeah, they do a lot with that, which is. Has been so influential since. Like the way mm. the amount of bands who have pulled from what neurosis have done throughout their career, like the obvious example is Mastodon, who have since somehow blown up bigger yeah. despite <laughs> yeah. very much doing, I guess, a more accessible version of the same yeah. idea.
1: Yeah. And it's it's interesting thinking again about sort of how neurosis think of themselves. There's an interview with Scott Kelly and Steve Von Till talking about the idea of post metal and the terms that have been used to describe neurosis, and they completely don't identify with that term. To them, it doesn't sum it up. For them, it's all about, you know, something that's original and musical and makes you feel. Yeah, that's yeah, what right. they would call it. Um, Steve until did say, like, you know, his easiest conception of it would be soul music. Obviously not the kind yeah. of soul music that would immediately jump to mind. Although I'd be well up for
0: neurosis trying to do a soul music album. That could be um, interesting. Um, possibly a strain on Scott Kelly's voice. yeah. yeah. Yeah, I I see what they mean because it is like kind of yeah, very soulful, very emotionally powerful. Like Mm. if you don't have the emotional connection with these songs, you're not going to like Neurosis. Like if you can't, similarly, actually, a lot of the bands we're coming today, if it's not inspiring an emotion in you, you're not going to love it just on the performance because the performance often isn't that complex. I mean, Neurosis has always been a band that I can't remember what album it's on that ends with a track which is just like kind of a tribal drum groove for 15 minutes. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. That works, but you're like... <laughs> these, you kind of have to be on board with what they're doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: And it's it's one of those things, I think, where we're used to finding those that sort of like desolation and bleakness in something like black metal. Mm. And I think it's really interesting to see that explored from a different musical style, from a completely different direction, and using that huge amount of open space. Something that Neurosis talk quite a lot about in interviews is as they've developed over their career, trying to give their songs more space and the instrumentations and the sections they've written just give it that space to exist in. And you can see that here, where they've sort of stretched everything out, and the melodies aren't complicated, and they're almost hypnotic in the way they work, and it has that space for that emotion to sort of sit unlike what you might find in black metal exploring similar kind of emotions, that sort of like desolation and bleakness. I think that's really interesting how you can come at that idea from two completely different
0: angles. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And they're a band I can understand as well, like these days they are very daunting to get into because yeah. they just have these huge albums and they've got hundreds of them and they're one of those bands is with such a rabid fan base. Like yeah. you you don't meet many people who are like, Yeah, neurosis are alright. Like <laughs> they either haven't heard them or think they're the best thing going. Like yeah. there's isn't many people in that kind of middle of the road point of view. And they're, they're kind of not only their influence is so far reaching, Scott Kelly keeps appearing on Everybody album. Yeah, yeah. Like he was on a Wolves in the Throne was it Scott Kelly on the Wolves in the Throne was it Steve Von Till? I can't remember. I don't know, actually. The latest album has yeah. guest vocals from Someone on Eurosis. <laughs> like it's, yeah, it's, um yeah, let's talk about Scott Kelly's vocals as well.
1: He's just one of those completely unique singers who you know him and I mean, you know him from Mastodon as well, because he has just—he has the best vocal moments in Mastodon. He has these incredible screams that he does every now and then, but then this like slow and mournful and rasping style tone. And Steve On Till's somewhat similar. It can be hard to pick the two of them out on this album, but they do have those distinct yeah,
0: moments. I was looking because there's three vocalists. Like, mm. I know, I uh, know, Dave's vocals are very much like occasional backing i can't tell one who's doing what it's i really, really hard. can't tell yeah yeah, yeah. Um, from what i can tell scott has the like
1: more extreme moments he has those gigantic screams i thought those were dave the really big right. screams i think might be the <laughs> Dave, the bass player like <laughs> yeah but it's yeah like they have that really consistent tone between three vocalists which yeah. is quite
0: something yeah that's uh, that's really cool yeah, I mean, they're a band we probably want to come back to and cover in more detail on other design because there's so much to be said about them. Mm. The thing is, though, they are popular enough. You can find long, long discussions about them on other podcasts. Yeah. I have some very old episodes of Requiem Metal that go into neurosis mm. in really great detail, that are worth digging out. One of the things I thought was just quite cool about this album, which you don't, well,
1: you get more on the later neurosis, but definitely doesn't exist earlier, is the use of the sound of sound effects and samples.
0: Yeah, particularly yeah.
1: in "Burn," like they use them with such amazing precision. There's this bit where you've cut out from the build up at the beginning into the sort of main melody, and there's these thunder sounds that are put in, and it's really like they're put in at an amazing moment, which just drives home the emotion of what's happening. And they, yeah, they do such a good job throughout the album of putting those in, where I think if you weren't really paying attention, you wouldn't notice they were being used at all. It just becomes part of the fabric of the music.
0: Yeah, yeah. They, they are one of those bands who are incredibly good at using samples now. They, mm. they, they're kind of subtle and they, you don't, yeah, as you say, you don't really notice them. They don't jump out yeah. and go, oh, they've, they've, that's an odd sample to put in there. It's always, yeah. just, it feels completely appropriate. Yeah, it just Much, fits that mood. Much like the sample at the start of the Ob album, they're just not, yeah. you kind of, like when you mention it, I completely forgot <laughs> there was a sample at the start. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, but yeah, they're, they're a fascinating band and they've gone through so much change over time. But I think, you know, this point where they really stripped everything back is actually really interesting and worth revisiting. You know, if you, if you haven't gotten to Neurosis, this might be an interesting point to start at, particularly if you're less into extreme metal or hardcore or something like that. This is an easier point to get in. Um, and it, you know, if you if you are a big fan of Neurosis, it's always worth revisiting these bits because I, I find it sometimes bits that I forget about. Oh, yeah, having lis- re-listened to it a lot recently, this
0: is some of my favourite stuff they've produced. Yeah, I think re- realistically, though, if you do want to get into Neurosis, just don't worry but too much about what album. Just choose an album and spend a lot of time with it. Maybe yeah. choose an album and try and view it in a way where you can just hear that for an hour without interruption, mm-hmm. and that. M- Might that's where they're going to make sense? That's kind of where you might suddenly pick up on something you weren't seeing in it before. I think, yeah, as we
1: said, it was Sumac as well, and with Job, like these are bands that require time because they're delivering this really powerful emotional message over the course of an album, and in that format, it just works. And that you do need to set aside that time.
0: So the, the next band we're covering is Giant Squid and their first album, sort of first album, we'll get into this, uh, Matridium Fields uh, from 2004 on Tyrannosaurus Records. I believe I've got the right one there. So that that's the first one. The second one is ah, 2006 shit. on the end records. And this yeah. is
1: really confusing. <laughs> so
0: so Strictly, we'll, we'll ignore that first one for time being come back to later. Strictly, yeah. Giant Squid are a band who needed three albums and then sort of soft split up, like mm. they, they've gone on to other things, so um, most notably their vocalist Aaron has gone into Corrado with the other guys from Agalock, but also they formed Squalus as yeah, yeah. their <laughs> weird tribute to Jaws after this <laughs> but we're looking at the basically the first thing this band put out um, they formed around 1999 as Koi, and then eventually got their first proper album out in 2006, and what Giant Squid do is this very strange mixture of sounds. Like, there's something that uh, clearly would appeal to a metal audience, mm. but I'd be willing to argue their music isn't remotely metal. No, and in fact um, AJ, the Aaron, the
1: vocalist and guitarist, he, he's not really a huge fan of a lot of metal, particularly not extreme metal. No, no, he and,
0: doesn't even know what death metal is, yeah, really. And, and,
1: and when they began as Koi, they were a punk reggae band, which I'm sure I would have hated. Oh, wow. But Somehow, Giant Squid hit this like, point for me where I absolutely love them, and I don't really understand why, based on everything I know about sort of, the musical influences and stuff, I don't get how they've hooked onto this
0: thing, which I absolutely love. So what they kind of do is, it's, quite, it's reasonably riffy, but like many of the other bands we're talking about, it's a lot of hyper-slow builds, and they play around with extremely gentle-sounding things mm. before eventually building into a big, heavy riff. And it, there's lots of uh, playoffs. Got two vocalists, um, Aaron Aaron Gregory is like the probably the lead vocalist for the pro- mm. for the project. And then um, oh, what's the name of the other vocalist? Oriel. Um, Aurel. yeah, she does like these kind of very subtle, like really often like really quiet cleans. And mm. there's a lot of riffs where they they will be just singing over each other, really really quietly, and it eventually yeah. builds a much bigger sounds like. They've both got very unique singing voices, particularly AJ. But
1: particularly songs like um, "Summit," which is like this real gradual build. Like they have these sort of soft, ethereal vocals from Orally, and the same from sort of AJ. Um, and like, and that gradually builds and builds into this like really like like very high pitched AJ. Yeah, as you say, AJ's vocals are bizarre. Like they're really interesting. They're very high. Like they're all the the. I find it really hard to find another vocalist to relate him to. The closest I can possibly think of is some like bits of Surge Tankin' from System of a Down.
0: It's a kind of almost is, a link. It's it's like they're kind of quite nasally clean punk vocals, but they, he clearly has a very good suit. Like he, mm. he's hitting notes, and it's not like. It's certainly not into the proper shouting stuff until he actually starts shouting, which he does occasionally throughout. Yeah, his voice, I think, will be the kind of the Marmite thing with this. Like, you're going to like it or you won't like Giant Squid. Because it's something that
1: took me a little bit of time, but it's actually something I found about Giant Squid and then about Karada, which is one of my favourite things about them. It has this, like... He has a really interesting, like, slight vibrato to a lot of things he does. And he'll sort of purposely put on this, like, slower vibrato where he'll, like, wobble the note around a little bit. Yeah. Which yeah. is really weird and kind of unsettling a lot of the time. Um, and he's super expressive as well. You really feel the emotion, in everything he says. He never gets sort of stuck in a pattern. And then, as you say as well, it contrasts with these really high moments with the shouting sort of coming into hardcore screaming.
0: Um, and then really, really quiet sections with both vocalists. Yeah, the way this album goes from, like, quiet to heavy is brilliant. Like, none of the stuff gets into proper, like, death metal heavy or anything. Actually, the heavier moments, I think, are this thing we've talked about before, are because the band do quiet so well, the heavy bits aren't actually that heavy. They just feel heavy because of how they got to them. Yeah. And, and almost every song, bar, like, the first and last, follow this structure of, like, a gentle build to a massive middle section and then kind of often like a bit of a gentle outro and
1: that's the thing I think one of the most fun things is um, the most like brutal screams on this are actually orally there's some really nasty screams in it particularly if you watch there's a few sort of like um, videos there's not that many of them playing songs off this album but there are a few and they're not enormously high quality but there's a few moments where you see her do the screams live and they're insane like they they really punch through um Mm. But yeah, and, they, and again, like, like we were saying with Sumac, their guitar tone's not particularly heavy or distorted no. at all. I think, and I'm not sure about it for this album, but I think they use um, baritone guitars. They're know. actually really quite low-tuned with quite thick strings, um, because I know that AJ does that with um, Corrada as well, and that's something that he's really quite into. So I think they might do that, because there are super low notes on this, but they're not distorted. Yeah, so a lot yeah. of the heavy sections are just really low guitar notes, but it doesn't have a gent feel at all because there's not really much distortion on it. It feels more like that, um, if you were to take that slightly distorted, like overdriven punk, but then
0: play it on a really low tuned guitar, it has that sort of feel, which is really unique. Yeah, and another thing that kind of makes it sound quite strange is a lot of the kind of melodies they put in it are kind of, gentle keyboards and Mm. trumpet there's loads of like (laughs) interesting little bits of trumpet i think might only be on two songs throughout the album but it comes in at the right moment you're like oh that was not the melody i was expecting that to go with yeah yeah um
1: and again they as we've sort of alluded to they have that like natural evolution of songs which um reading interviews with them how they basically wrote all of this stuff was just get in a room, they'd bring some riffs that they'd written and they'd just jam it out and they'd spend hours and hours going, okay, well, where does this riff lead? Like, what comes after this bit? How do we evolve it? They have a really natural flow. It always feels right when it transitions. um, Yeah. And, and there's a, a, the best example of that is the final song oh, yes. called Fields which is a titanic 21 minute song which is basically one riff
0: yeah more or less <laughs> it's, it's, sort of, it's almost not quite one riff but like it's at the same chord progression at the same yeah. pace continues for 20 minutes yeah. with just elements around it changing but only subtly but it's yeah. brilliant it's yeah. utterly yeah, yeah. brilliant because
1: it starts off with this rea- it starts off with this sort of like sampled dialogue which is really quiet and then this slow little guitar passage played throughout it. And then that builds up, adding the drums and adding the bass and adding some sort of atmospheric elements. And then eventually, like the heavier guitar riff comes in. And then it starts adding keyboard elements, it adds trumpet elements. And then finally, like somehow, the guitar riff evolves to be even heavier. Yeah. And it just ends in this absolute crescendo of the same pattern you were listening to 20 minutes ago, but completely different. Um, and I love how they bring in these mosaics of different instruments around
0: it. Yeah, so the thing, the thing we sort of mentioned earlier, if you want to get into this album, look up the second version, Fields Not Field, yeah. because the band, I'm not quite sure the reasoning behind this, but the band seemed to record one version of the album two years prior on a different record mm. label, which was way shorter, like, same amount of songs, but every track had a minute or two shaved off it, and the final track had five minutes, like... yeah. Now, I don't know if they rewrote them or if they were edited and then they decided to to sort of re-record them differently. But you were saying, like, they'd, they'd lost the original, like, yeah, stems what, tracks, basically. From what I was able to find, they first recorded it back in 2004,
1: and then when they had this stable lineup, when they'd started, you know, playing and they'd recorded some of these other um, albums and EPs... They wanted to go back and basically just redo, re- like remaster the recordings of this. They went back, found the files, and they were basically useless. Like they couldn't do anything with them. So they re recorded the whole album with the new lineup. And yeah, I don't know if they added these new sections or if they just uncut the songs. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's kind of weird because the original album in 2004 was called Metridium Field. And the one in two thousand and six is called Metridium Fields as a plural, but a typo means that on the album itself the S is missing. So they're both called Metridium Fields. So it's really, I haven't haven't actually managed to track down the original one to listen to what it sounds like.
0: Yeah. Um, I I think I think it's basically you'd have to you're not gonna pick up the shorter edited one by accident. Yeah. Like you might do with, say, Jerusalem versus Dope Smoker. Mm, I definitely mm. got Jerusalem by accident, and it's oh, yeah. a far, like far more subpar version of that. <laughs> the editing was not clever. Yeah. Um. The other
1: thing I want to talk about with Giant Squid is um the sort of conceptual behind yeah. the band. So if you will probably notice, there's a lot of weird words in their songs, and because there's an awful number of species names and genre names kicking around. So um. Metridium is a genus of sea anemones. So, Metridium Fields, I always like to imagine the song is sort of like this underwater surreal vision of this like waving field of sea anemones, which fits really nicely with how mm. the sort of tone builds up, particularly at the beginning of the song. Um, and the sort of intro little instrumental is um, Megoptera in the Delta, which is the species name for humpback whales. Um, and AJ is a is, is an aquarium keeper or was an aquarium keeper. Also an artist who does loads of stuff about um, sea life and extinct sea life as well, which I'm really into. So I'm, I'm really into Giant Squid also for that reason because they have a lot of stuff about paleontology and other weird things. So they've got Ampoule of Lorenzini as well, which is a song on this, which is electro-receptors in sharks. So there's loads of weird references to sea creatures in it. But some of the stuff they've spoken about in interviews, and particularly AJ has spoken about, is the idea that they use sort of oceanic things, which he knows a lot about, as a method of exploring more conceptual ideas. So Neonate, for example, used to be, or originally was going to be a song about sand tiger sharks, where the embryos inside the womb, they kill and eat each other. Yeah. Which is metal as fuck. But then what Neonate ended up becoming instead was about the idea of offspring taking in more energy than they give out. So having a child or offspring, you pour more energy in than you will get out. So it essentially destroys you. And it's about, like, the process of offspring destroying humanity. And there's a lot of sort of, like, environmental stuff. So that has, like, that environmental angle of, you know, overpopulation and that idea and destroying the natural world. So I think there's actually an awful lot underneath here, and it is a little bit silly,
0: but it's exactly my kind of silly. Yeah, <laughs> get on with that. Yeah, there's definitely some like wackiness in the lyrics, but it's that kind of thing of... I don't think you're going to get a lot of AJ's meanings just by reading the lyrics. They are that <laughs> kind of slight bizarre poetry that mm. he clearly has put a lot of thought and effort into, but it's not necessarily um, yeah, completely obvious on the surface level. But yeah. the lyrics are really fun, like mm. the aforementioned Neonate. Like one of the first lyrics of the album is that this maternity ward is a feeding ground. Yeah. which when I <laughs> like the first time I listened to it, I clocked that. I was like, oh, okay, I'm already it's, into yeah. this. This is it's, weird. Yeah,
1: and they're um yeah, you watch their live performances as well. There's one um, big their final show. Unfortunately, they don't play any songs off this album. They play a bunch of songs off the next two. Mm. Um, but at, at that point they've changed as well because they have a. Someone playing electric cello full time yeah, as part yeah. of the band—it's really cool to watch. And watching some of the like sort of lower quality videos of Neonate off this, they're so energetic, and the performances are so sort of electric and really tight and really sort of in your face. You've got so much energy going on. Uh, it really it has that sort of punk feel to mm. it. Oh, definitely. um Yeah, like they're. It's it's a shame that they're currently on hiatus. They might be doing something again in the future. Um, AJ has said in interviews, but. Uh, We'll see, but they're definitely like a really interesting microcosm of something that isn't really metal but appeals to metal heads.
0: Yeah, I think this is one of the, yeah, definitely one of those uniquely the audience for this is definitely metal fans, yeah. even though the band members making it are far more into subhumans than they are yeah The last thing we want to cover is a Liverpool-based band got, got in touch with us with basically sent like sent over their debut EP for us to check out, and it fits really nicely with the bands we're covering today. Mm. It's it kind of instrumental sludge slash doom yeah. kind of that kind of slightly experimental big sound. So the band's name I'm going to guess is Meru or something like that. It's M A I R U. And this is their debut EP, The Sacred Dissonance. Um, and it's a four-track, like almost half hour long, like just really intense. You can kind of get a bit of like the heavier end of neurosis riffing mm. kind of vibe from it. It's just these kind of these songs that do long form build with just mm. giant guitar tones and just really crushing riffs and it's got
1: that sort of um aggressive tone like off some of yob stuff as well where the guitar work is is doom but is really driving and aggressive doom, almost like bits of cathedral as well where it's not just languishing in that slowness they can and they do have really heavy sections but they'll vary up the pace a little bit as well
0: which i really liked yeah, for its half-hour runtime, this was, like, thoroughly engaging yeah. throughout. Like, there, there isn't a dud riff in it. And beyond that as well, for a debut EP, the production's fucking excellent. The production's amazing. The guitar tone is this amazing balance of
1: crunchy and fuzzy and huge at the same time as being distinguishable, which is such a hard thing. You hear so many bands who, like, really struggle to get that, and the, obviously the
0: four bands we've covered today have done it, but
1: yeah, these guys have a guitar tone that's... It is good. Like... Yeah,
0: yeah, and I guess there is some degree of like the wonders of modern technology. Like this album was released earlier this year. Mm. It's very much like they're very much a current band, and I think they're at the point now where they're doing their first few few gigs and already doing quite well. Like I've, I don't know if you've seen any of the acts they've been supporting. Like mm. they've played with uh, Voices already. Oh, nice. Um, oh, I'm blanking on some of the other gigs they've done, but they've done a lot of cool yeah. support slots around the UK, and they're definitely. Like um, kind of local hero Segvera, another yeah. one of these instrumental acts where I'm, if the right people see them, I could see them doing very well.
1: I think Segvera is a really interesting comparison because it's, The interesting thing is like, you know, it's half an hour and there are no vocals, and a lot of the time there are a lot of bands who I really like, like Monkey 3, for example, who are really cool. They're an instrumental band, they do really amazing like guitar melodies and stuff, but they it does wear a bit after a while. There's not necessarily those hooks to keep you engaged that vocals will normally do, despite the fact some of the instrumentation is amazing. And these guys and Segvera are really interesting in that they fill that gap pretty much with like that atmosphere that the other bands we've been talking about. It's all about giving that like emotional package through the music. And they do this, which helps fill out that the thing where there's not a hook. The hook is that emotional experience which you are being given. Whereas some other bands they will have like moments where you sort of lose that. There are moments which are like amazing emotional highs, but to keep that going for a full 30 minutes on your first
0: album that's amazing. It was well, something as well, I didn't even, I, on first, because I saw when he quite sight and seen it just hit play on it mm. and on the first listen I was like, I think that was instrumental. I just I remember same, enjoying it. same and, like, thing. Yeah. I was like, I've got to go back and check there wasn't vocals in one yeah. of the tracks because I think I could, because you just, you get into a groove with this. It's that kind of music where I couldn't tell you exactly what riff was in rough, which song. I just like, I just remember enjoying it a lot. I, I, I did that with the first couple of tracks. I listened through, and
1: and then, like, you know, it was after ten minutes or so, I was like, oh, yeah, bands have vocalists. I wonder <laughs> if they've got one of those. Because <laughs> like, I just hadn't clocked that that wasn't happening, because there's enough going on with all the guitars, which is capturing your attention with that atmosphere that it's producing.
0: Yeah, yeah. But so these guys are definitely one to watch. Like, they see... They don't. See, I don't think they've got a lot of history like uh, looking them up on Metal Archives I think one member's been in some other bands but mm. otherwise this is pretty new stuff and if unfortunately I missed them when they played Bristol but if they can reproduce this live which I've got no reason to believe they couldn't this is stuff that could do really well and yeah. I think be one to watch like if their debut EP is this solid I'd be very hopeful for what they put out in the future but Yeah, so the spelling of the name is M-A-I-R-U a um, couple of th- other things I wanted to plug very briefly, because I don't think I mentioned them on the podcast. I've gotten to another two podcasts recently that are really solid. Um, one of them I'm just totally obsessed with at the moment is the Heavy Hole podcast, which is uh, Will from Artificial Brain with Tom. Tong- and I don't know which bands Tom's from. Yeah. I know he plays in some stuff. and Those two cover almost exclusively, like, extreme metal that's Mm. particularly focused on the death metal, although they are branching out. And they do, like, these amazing interview series. And it's often with people I've never heard of. And they do them well enough that there's something to latch onto if you don't Mm. know the guy. It's a really good look into, kind of, touring life, um, the ideas of how to record stuff. But then also a lot about how labels put out music and, kind of, the role of labels Mm. in... Modern metal, it, really interesting podcast, and they've got stuff like interviews with Blood Incantation and Colin Marston recently. Oh, which nice. is Like, yeah, yeah that, that should sell it to <laughs> most listeners who enjoy the heavier stuff. And another one I got into, like this one, I have more been focusing on members like of bands I actually know. But Vox and Hops is a um, kind of one for the beer drinking enthusiast, but it's the frontman of Cryptopsy interviewing mm. mainly other vocalists. So he's got one oh, with like yeah. Travis Ryan. Uh, the one with the frontman of Benighted was a really decent one. And it's a lot of stuff like having really in depth half hour interviews. Talking a lot about like, touring. So if you're interested in kind of what being in a slightly more low level, like not necessarily crypts obviously aren't necessarily low level, but like a band who aren't making a fortune off the tour. Yeah, metal Band who aren't of, Metallica basically. Yeah, so. exactly. <laughs> but like what that kind of looks like, that kind of life. There's a lot of really interesting stuff there also some very deep dives on like vocal technique kind of stuff mm. so if yeah if you're into metal singing and like how that works yeah it's some really interesting stuff oh uh, yes but i think that's basically it for this one um yeah if you could leave us a review on itunes that would be really cool otherwise get in touch phil's breakfast metal on facebook at breakfast metal on twitter or phil's breakfast metal at gmail.com